We're in the middle of this series that I've called Follow Me. The subtitle is A Fresh Look at Jesus and the Movement He Began. And the reason we're doing this is because in our culture, the, the term Christian has sort of lost its meaning and its specificity. We attach the word Christian to so many different things. A Christian bookstore and a Christian radio station and, geez, there's Christian gyms and Christian everythings. And, and the term Christian has sort of been watered down a little bit. That's, it wasn't originally that way. And because of that, we've sort of lost the, the meaning of what it means to be a Christian. We've sort of drifted off course over time in terms of understanding what it means to be a Christian. When the word first came around, it was a term that was given to the Jesus followers by outsiders. Outsiders looking in saw these people who were trying to live like Christ, and so they called them Christians. In the, in the ancient world, the addition of the suffix I-A-N meant follower of or little. It was diminutive. So to be a Christian literally meant to be a little Christ. And, and so these other people on the outside looking in saw this group of disciples, as, as they were called, these, this group of Jesus followers, and called them Christians because they were trying to live like little Christs. They were following Christ. So what I've told you over and over again is that to be a Christian is to be like Christ. We saw this a couple weeks ago, Jesus teaching about what it means to, to be a disciple. To be a disciple means to become like the master, like the teacher. So to be a Christian means to become like Christ. And so one of the things that I've said over and over again is that if we want to be like Christ, we have to know what Christ was like. If we want to become like Christ, which is what it means to be a Christian, we have to know what Christ was like. And so what we're doing is we're taking a dive into the book of Luke. The book of Luke is one of the four Gospels written by somebody named Luke. You guessed it. You're very smart. Um, Luke is a physician. He was a physician back in the first century, uh, a Gentile who came to believe that this Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, that he was crucified and risen again. And so what he did is he tells us in the beginning of the of the gospel, the beginning of his story, that he set out to investigate the claims about Christ, that he set out to investigate all of the claims, and after having carefully investigated it, in interviewing the eyewitnesses, he came up with this document that he wrote that we call the, the Gospel of Luke, and it tells the story of the life of Jesus, what he did and what he taught. And so the reason we're studying that is because we want to know what Jesus was like so that we can become like him. So I'm going to say that over and over again to make sure that that part rubs in. We want to become like Christ. That's why we're studying his life in the book of Luke. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. If you don't, I'll put the text up here on the screen. Uh, we're going to follow Jesus this morning into an interaction that he has in a particular city called the, the city of Nain, or the town of Nain. Uh, and we're going to follow him into this interaction he has with somebody in need. And we're going to see how he puts some flesh on what he had just taught uh, previously in what we call the Sermon on the Plain. In the Sermon on the Plain, he talks about compassion and giving to those who can't give back and, and how we um, show love and compassion to those in need. And so he's going to show us a little bit about what that looks like in this interaction. So, so we're following him from Capernaum last week to the town of, of Nain this week. And so here's how Luke begins this story. He says, starting in verse 11, Soon afterward, this is after he had healed the centurion's servant, like we talked about last week. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples in a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, 
So what we see here is Jesus is walking to this town name, and at the same time there's this procession coming out of the town, uh, and this procession is sort of like a funeral procession, and they're carrying a dead body. And so the way that it sort of worked then, you know, our funeral processions are usually, you've got a closed coffin in a hearse, right, and everybody drives in cars. Well, they didn't have any of that back in the first century, so they did, a lot of what they did was on walking. And they wouldn't have had closed caskets in the Judean culture. They buried their people in open sepulchers a lot of times. We know that from the, from the burial of Jesus. And so probably what was happening was there was a group of, uh, you know, we would call them pallbearers, right? So they're carrying this, this body on um, a bier, which in this particular case was probably a piece of fabric stretched uh, between two poles. And people would carry these poles, uh, and the body would be laid on top, Uh, and then wrapped in some grave clothings to mask the odor and all of that. And so they were doing this funeral procession out of the city, because a lot of times the the bodies would be buried outside of the city gates. So Jesus and his followers are walking up to the town of Nain, and as they're walking up, coming out of the town of Nain is this funeral procession where this uh, person had died. Luke goes on to tell us that the person who died was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. So this was, uh, if, if you can just imagine for just a moment how, how heartbreaking a situation this would have been for this particular woman. Luke includes this for a reason. Uh, in that culture, in the first century, all around the world basically, uh, women were regarded basically as second class at best, right? They didn't have all of the same rights as men. They didn't have the same privileges of, as men. So a lot of times, you know, for, for financial and social security, uh, women often relied on their husbands or their fathers or their male sons. And so what we have here, Luke is telling us that we have a woman now who is utterly alone She's already lost her husband. She's a widow, which in that culture, you know, there's a stigma already to being a widow. If you're a widow in that culture, there's just a stigma that surrounds that. You don't have this kind of social and economic security that you would otherwise. So she's already dealing with that. Uh, At least she had what it looks like a a male son who could have provided some sort of financial and social security, if not in the present, at least in the future, so she could rely on that. Now all of a sudden she has lost, it seems tragically, because we're going to find out that he was a young man, that she has tragically lost her young son. I know that there are some of you in this room who, who, who can actually relate to the, to the pain and the loss this woman felt. Some of you who have lost children, you know how incredibly devastating, how incredibly heartbreaking this situation must have been. And if you think about that and you multiply it by the, the social, social conditions of the day, that, that now to be this woman all on her own with, with no hope of financial security, no hope of social security, having lost the, the only people in her life that, that were related to her, that she loved so dearly, she's, she's just, you know, try to empathize, try to feel with her how, how painful, how devastating that must have been right in the middle of this funeral. It says a large crowd... Uh, from the town was with her in that time people would gather together and mourn communally and there were professional mourners who would cry the whole way and the reason they would do that was to give the family some freedom to express emotion you know in our culture we try to tell people that you shouldn't display emotion outwardly Um, but back then they sort of understood that that outward display of emotion was very healing and so they would have professional mourners who would mourn with you so that you could feel free to to mourn and to cry and so you have this whole whole gathering with this, with this just devastated woman walking out of the town of Nain. And this is what Jesus sees when he walks up. Luke goes on to tell us, he says, When he saw her, his heart went out to her. When the Lord saw her, 
his heart went out to her. And I like that translation in the, in the New International Version because it's a translation that we sort of understand. You know, we say, you know, my heart goes out to you in the situation. We, we get sort of what that means. Uh, Jesus' heart went out to her. But I also don't like it because I don't think that it's, it's a strong enough translation from what we see um, in the Greek. The, the Greek word that's translated, his heart went out to her here, is the Greek word splonknitsomai. Everybody say that with me, splonknitsomai. There you go. It's kind of fun to say, isn't it? Splonknitsomai. Uh, it means to be moved with compassion, splonknitsomai. It comes from the Greek word splonkna. Say splonkna. There you go, splunkna. It's this word that means entrails. It was a word that they used to, to relate to all of your entrails on the inside, your heart and your lungs and your stomach and your intestines. We would say guts, right? It's a word that re- relates to the guts, to the insides. So splonknitsomai is to be moved on the inside. Maybe you've experienced this, where, you, where you've seen somebody in such great need and you were just, you were literally, you felt it in your guts. You, you were, you were, you know, you sort of hit in the gut. Have you ever seen somebody or, you know, maybe it was a person or maybe it was, you know, a little animal or a puppy or, or, or a little baby or, or some of these, um, you know, pictures of the refugees or, or you see these infomercials of, of kids in Africa or Asia who are, you know, just emaciated to the bone. You know, some of these images to us that, that just, they, they hit us at a visceral gut level and you're just, you're moved. It, it, it's like a punch in the gut. This is, this is what this word means. When Jesus saw this woman who was walking out, who is uh, this widow who had now lost her only son, he was sort of hit in the gut with compassion. And, and that's what compassion is, right? It, it, it's this feeling in here. It's this, this, this longing, this, this gut-level longing to do something, to want to help, to care. This is what Jesus is feeling, this, this gut-level care and compassion for this woman. So Luke goes on and he tells us what Jesus did, does next after he sees this woman who's, who's in such distress. He says, And he stood on the side of the road, and as the funeral procession went by, he went back to his business, promising to send thoughts and prayers. What? No. Your Bible doesn't say that? No, mine doesn't either. This is what he really did. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. At which point, you're probably thinking, what? You know, put yourself in this this woman's shoes for just a moment. Uh, you know, here she is, she, she's lost her husband already, she's lost her, her only son, and now this stranger who's walking up to the city sees her, you know, grieving for her son, he walks up and he says, don't cry. She's like, what do you mean, don't cry? I've just, I've, I've lost everything. Don't you understand what I must be going through? Um, you know, so you can imagine, like, how shocking and how strange this would have been for this particular woman to have this stranger walk up to her and say, don't cry. Uh, but he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, don't cry. He goes on and does something else. He says, then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. So he touched this little litter, this little, um, you know, carrying device that that had this dead body on it. Jesus looks at this woman, he says, don't cry, and then he walks up and he touches this this litter that they're carrying him on, and everybody stops. Um, You know, imagine how strange this would have been for these people. You know, here you're, you're in the middle of this funeral procession, and all of a sudden, this stranger, this, this, this guy that nobody knows, walks up. Um, he, he talks to the, to the mother who's grieving, says, don't cry. And then he walks up, and he just touches the, this, this dead body that they're, they're carrying him on. Um, it, you know, every, so the parents stop. Everybody's wondering, what in the world is going on here? Um, but, and it gets even stranger, right? After that, he says, uh, 
And the bearer stood still. He said to the young man, I say to you, get up. Right? Try to think how, how weird this would have been in that situation. To, to imagine that. Imagine that you're sitting in here and we're having a funeral. And in the middle of the funeral, some stranger walks in the back door. He walks up and he puts his hand on the shoulder of, of the family up here who's crying and says, you know, stop crying. And then he walks up to the front and he looks into the casket and he says, get up. Right? Imagine like, how shocked all of us would be in that particular moment to see some stranger come in and, and tell this person who had died now to get up. I mean, this would have gotten everybody's attention. Everybody would start to murmur, what in the world is going on? Who is this guy? Who does he think he is to, to interrupt this wedding, to, or this, this wedding, this funeral, to, um, to come in and, and interrupt? Does it, you know, where's his care and compassion? This guy must be nuts. And then what happened next would have gotten everybody's attention even more. Luke tells us, the dead man sat up and began to talk. Right? You know, we read this after 2,000 years, and, you know, some of us are so familiar with the story that we don't understand, like, how shocking this would have been. Here was this, they knew he was dead. He had probably been dead for at least a couple of days at this point. You know, they were going to bury him, and now all of a sudden, this stranger enters the situation, and this dead man is now up and talking. I mean, this would have gotten everybody's attention. And it says, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Now, one of the things that I want to point out in the situation is that when Jesus walked up and touched this beer that they were carrying him on, according to Jewish law, that would have made Jesus unclean for seven days. According to Jewish law, if you look, go to Numbers chapter 19, verse 11 and following in your Bible, you can see the prescription they had for somebody who comes in contact with a dead body or anything that a dead body has touched. And the prescription for uncleanness was, you're unclean for seven days. That's a pretty big deal. Imagine you know, being out of commission, out of work for the next seven days. Because if you're unclean, then everything that you touch is unclean moving forward. So, so this Jesus took upon himself what could have been a major inconvenience in his life. It's not like you know, he necessarily just had you know, a, a week to take off every time he did something nice for somebody. So Jesus, when he was moved with compassion, this compassion moved him to action. He didn't just stay off in the distance and provide thoughts and prayers. He, he walks in, he touches the spear, making himself, at this point, making himself unclean for the next seven days and anything he touched. Right? So this, this was an investment on Jesus' part. This, was, this would have cost him something, at least some time, certainly some inconvenience to, to involve himself in this way, and they would have known that. Now, having done so, the guy raises up. I don't know if, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a Jewish law scholar. I don't know if that means that he's no longer unclean because the guy is no longer dead. Maybe that nullifies it out. But the point is, is that it would, have, it would have been inconvenient. It would have cost him something to, to enter in and provide compassionate action in this particular way. So he walks in. He does this. All of a sudden, this young man is up, and he's talking. Uh, and this is the response, Luke tells us. They were filled with awe. And praised God. A prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. So maybe you read this and you think, 
um, this is just impossible, right? This, this, is, uh, this is just a fairy tale. Uh, people don't get up from the dead. This, is, this must just be some fairy tale that they made up to tell stories about Jesus. And I can understand why you might think that, because we don't normally see people getting up from the dead on a regular basis, right? We generally know that if somebody's about to be buried, then they're probably not going to get up again. Um, that's just general understanding about life. So I can understand why somebody might read this and think, well, you know, they must have just made this up to, to tell stories about Jesus. But I want to remind you that this story was written by Luke. And Luke was a physician. He was a doctor in the first century. And he wasn't a Jewish doctor. He was a Gentile doctor. And he came at some point in his life to believe that Jesus, the one who did this thing, was himself crucified and raised from the dead. And so, you know, if, if somebody can predict their own death and resurrection, right, then we tend to believe that nothing else is really impossible at that point. If somebody can, somebody can raise, you know be raised from the dead themselves, then the fact that they can work miracles doesn't seem so, uh, so impossible at that particular moment. So for me, if Luke, who was a, a first century physician, came to believe that this stuff was true, because remember he tells us in the beginning of the, of the gospel that he carefully investigated everything from the beginning so that we could know for certainty the things that we've been taught. So in other words, Luke seems to really believe that this, that this happened. And after having believed that Jesus himself was raised from the dead, uh, he's, we've, we've got pretty good uh, evidence to believe that this really happened, that Jesus really did this thing. Um, so just a little explanation there. If you, if you think that it's impossible, just you know, remember, if, if we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, which all of the evidence seems to point to that he was, then this really seems not so impossible at that moment. So uh, I, I, I know what some of you are thinking at this moment. Um, you're thinking, well, the, the name of this series is Follow Me, right? We're, we're to become like Christ. Um, and so what you're probably thinking right now is, how do we follow Jesus here? Right? How, what, what does this teach us about following Jesus? Does this mean that we're supposed to, you know, go into every funeral that we come across and, like, tell the dead body to raise up? No. <laughs> I, I see some of you sigh with relief, okay? That, that's, not what, that's not the point of this message here. The po- point of the message isn't that we're supposed to go to every funeral and, and every, um, you know, every dead person that we see and, and, you know, tell people to stop crying and tell the body to raise up. That's not the point of this message. But there are some guiding questions that I think we can draw from this that will help us to become more Christ-like in our endeavors. And here's the first one. Are we moved with compassion to help those in need? Are we moved with compassion to help those in need? When we see those who are in need, when we see those who are hurting and devastated and helpless, do we we have the gut-level reaction to reach out and help? And if we do, that's great. If we do, that's great. That's wonderful. It's a great first step. If we don't, maybe that's something we should pray about. Maybe that's something where we pray, God, I, I, help, help me to be more compassionate. Give me more compassion. Give me your eyes and your heart for the people around me who are in need. Give me, give me your, your heart and your eyes. Help me to feel the kind of compassion that Jesus did for those who are in need. God, I, I, I confess that I don't feel that right now, but I want to. I want you to help me have this kind of compassion. Are we moved with compassion to help those in need? Second question. Does that compassion turn into action? Does that compassion turn into action? Do we do do something more with what we feel than just sending thoughts and prayers? Not that thoughts and prayers aren't powerful. Prayer, we believe prayer is very powerful. But sometimes we, we send thoughts and prayers as an excuse for not doing anything. Right? 
oh, I'll, I'll pray for you, brother. I'll pray for you, sister. When, when you know, James talks about this um, in, in his letter to the early church. James, the half-brother of Jesus, which, by the way, you know, if you're looking for a, uh, you know, somebody as proof that Jesus was who he said he was, I think the, you know, the apostle James is pretty good. Because the question is, what would it take for you to believe that your brother was the son of God? You know, so, you know, for James to, to believe this is pretty good proof that Jesus was who he was, who he said he was, and that he did what he said he did. So James, when he writes about this, he says, What good is it, brothers and sisters, if somebody comes to you naked and destitute of daily food, and you say, Depart, brother, be warmed and filled, and you don't give them the things that are needful for the body. That's what James says. In other words, if you say, Oh, I'm, you know, somebody comes up and, and, and has a need, you say, I'll pray for you, brother. I'll pray for you, sister. Sometimes that's good, and sometimes that's necessary, but if we're never willing to, to put any more action to our compassion other than thoughts and prayers, we, we might need to take a look in the mirror and say, what, what more can I do? What, what hands and feet, what flesh can I put on this compassion? How can I turn this compassion into action? That's question number two. Number three, are we willing to get our hands dirty to help people? Are we willing to get our hands ready to help people, or we, do we only help when it's convenient? Do we only help when it's not any inconvenience to us? Remember, touching this dead body at this particular time it would have made Jesus unclean for seven days. And we see this in, in other situations in Jesus' life, that he's willing to get his hands dirty, to take on some inconvenience and cost to himself. At the very end of his life, we know that he gave his very own life. It, it costs his life to, to provide the help that we needed, and we couldn't help ourselves to bridge that relationship back to God that Jesus gave his own life? Are we, are we willing to invest, to get our hands dirty, to have help and compassion cost us something, you know, to, to affect us in some tangible way? Are we willing to get our hands dirty to help people? And number four, do we believe that God can work through us to bring about supernatural deliverance? And maybe you've never thought about it that way before, but if you think about this, what Jesus did, it wasn't the first time this had been done. The prophets in the Old Testament had raised people from the dead, and it wasn't the last time it had been done. Peter, later on, uh, in, as we read in the book of Acts, Peter's going to raise somebody from the dead who had died. So, um, you know, do we believe that when Jesus says he's going to send the Spirit to us, that's going to empower us for works of service, that when Jesus says that, that those who believe on me, the works that I do, shall they do also, and greater works than these, do we believe that, that we have supernatural empowerment from the Holy Spirit to do works, to bring about healing and deliverance and whatever that may be? Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to get to raise every person who dies from the dead, but it, doesn't, it also doesn't mean that that's not a possibility. Are we willing to trust that God can actually work in us to bring about supernatural deliverance? Do we, do we believe that the Spirit of God that resides inside of us gives us supernatural spiritual power when God would call us to step in? We, you know, the, the healings and the miracles and all that didn't stop with Jesus. The, the early followers of Jesus saw these same things happen. And, you know, and we, so we believe that. We believe that the Spirit is still alive and at work today. Um, you know, but I think sometimes we trick ourselves out of that. So it's just, just a question. Again, it's not going to happen every time, um, but do we believe that it's even a possibility still? Uh, so, so I think those are some questions that can guide us in this passage on how we can follow Jesus in this particular example, you know, especially when it comes to, to having compassion, to being moved, and then to putting um, that compassion into action. You know, Jesus is no longer walking around bodily on earth, right? He left 
And he entrusted us to carry out and to continue the mission that he began. That's one of the reasons that we're doing this. He has empowered us to be his representatives, his ambassadors here on earth. And we, so as ambassadors, we carry the, the same authority as the one who entrusted us with the message and the mission. We're his ambassador. We're his hands and feet. So Jesus isn't necessarily going to show up um, bodily and personally, but he's sending us to be his agents and his representatives. So that's how we can follow Jesus. And there's one more point uh, that I want to bring up with this. And this is, you know, we, I, I'm keeping, in general, the focus of this series on how we can become like Christ. But there, there's one last point that I, I want to draw from this message. And this is whether you're a Jesus follower or you're not a Jesus follower. This is really for, for any of us. That last stuff is, is mostly for those of us who claim to be Jesus followers. But, but even if you're not, I think this last point applies to you. And that's this. Jesus is present in our pain. Jesus is present in our pain. He showed up at this moment, at this moment of deepest need with this woman. Now, Jesus' presence in our pain doesn't always mean that there's going to be supernatural deliverance. He doesn't always heal supernaturally. He doesn't always raise someone from the dead who dies. But he is always present. And he's always there. And he's always moved with compassion. So if you're feeling all alone, and if you feel like no one cares, and if you feel like you've lost everything, there's someone who's there who is moved with compassion, who loves you, who cares for you, and who is present in your pain. And for those of you who are Jesus followers, for those of us who are Jesus followers, we get to represent Jesus in that way. We get to be present with people in their pain. So how can you, as a follower of Jesus, be present in the pain of someone else? How can you be his hands and feet? And for those of you who don't yet know him, who may be feeling this, I want you to know that you're not alone. You're not alone. Jesus is present in your pain, and we will be too if you let us know. We're willing to stand beside you and stand with you. We can't promise that we can meet every one of your needs. We can't promise that we can bring supernatural healing. We can pray for you and we can serve you. And so if you're feeling alone, if you need someone to, to be there with you, then, then speak up, put it on a prayer card, find me afterwards. We want you to know that Jesus is present in your pain and we will be too. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you once again for inspiring Luke to investigate these claims, to write down these stories. We thank you for preserving them throughout history so that we have these historical documents of what you wrought in history through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for these stories that can teach us how to be like Christ. We pray, Father, that you would work within us, that you would build within us hearts of compassion, that you would move us for the things that move you that you would give us your eyes and your heart for the people around us and the world around us in need, that you would give us the courage to put some action to our compassion, that you would give us the courage to reach out and potentially even get our hands dirty, if that's necessary, God, as we reach out. We just pray that you would empower us as, as your will would dictate to reach out and to pray and to see signs and miracles and wonders and supernatural things happen as you would have them to. 
Father, we pray that you would just continue to direct our eyes and our hearts towards the things that please you and the things that break your heart, that you would break our hearts for the things that break yours. And Lord, we, we thank you for the promise that you are present in our pain. That no matter what it is that we may experience, no matter what it is that we're going through, that you are there, that you're with us. Father, we know that you know what it's like to experience the death of your only child. We know that you can feel what we feel in the midst of our pain, and that you are moved with compassion on our behalf. So, Father, we thank you for being there for us, and we pray that you would help us to be there for others in the same way. I thank you for these things in Jesus' strong name.